Today's American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. My name is Scott Pryor, and I'm a professor of law at the Regent University School of Law. This semester, I'm also the American Bankruptcy Institute resident scholar. Those who follow bankruptcy law closely may remember that in May of 2013, the United States Supreme Court answered a question that had troubled the lower courts for many years. What does the word defalcation mean in Section 523A4 of the Bankruptcy Code, which provides that an individual cannot obtain a bankruptcy discharge from a debt for fraud or defalcation while acting in a fiduciary capacity? According to Justice Breyer, writing for a unanimous court, the term defalcation in the Bankruptcy Code includes a culpable state of mind requirement involving knowledge of or gross recklessness with respect to the improper nature of the fiduciary behavior. But that holding was hardly obvious before the court's decision. Today, we have the opportunity to learn from two guests whose views of the meaning of defalcation were diametrically opposed. First is Tom Byrne, who is a member of the litigation practice group at the Sutherland firm in Atlanta, where he focuses on complex business litigation, primarily the defense of consumer and policyholder class actions and bankruptcy litigation. Tom was counsel to the petitioner, in this case, Randy Bullock. Our other guest is Professor Keith Scharfman, who directs bankruptcy studies at the St. John University School of Law, teaches and writes in the areas of antitrust, bankruptcy, commercial law, corporate finance, and corporate reorganization. With several other legal scholars, Professor Scharfman signed an amicus brief, in this case in support of the respondent, Bank Champagne. Let's begin by asking Tom to give us a summary of the facts of this case. Well, I will do that. It is a sad case. It is a uh, family squabble that uh, turned into litigation and continued uh, over many years until uh, finally Randy Bullock, the named uh, petitioner in the case, uh, had to file bankruptcy. But it began as a dispute over the administration of the the father's life insurance trust. Uh, there were, there are four, uh, excuse me, five Bullock children, and the squabble ultimately resulted in Randy Bullock, the trustee, uh, having to file bankruptcy. He had been initially appointed by his father as as the trustee when the trust was created in 1980 or 1978. The trust was a uh, life insurance trust, which is a common uh, scheme associated with uh, trying to reduce your taxes when you uh, buy a life insurance policy. And his father was sold the policy by a life insurance agent who suggested the, the trust to, to accomplish that. But until his father approached him about a loan from the trust a few years later, Randy Bullock didn't even know he was the trustee. Uh, the dispute in, that came before the court involved three loans that were taken against the cash value of the of the life insurance policy. They were all ultimately repaid in full with 6% interest in connection with uh, Randy Bullock's resignation as trustee in 1998. Uh, the first loan, though, was made in 1981 for roughly $117,000 at the request of uh, Mr. Bullock's, Bullock's father, who was the settlor of the trust. And that loan went to Mr. Bullock's mother so she could repay a debt that was owed to the family garage construction business. Then there were two other loans, one in 1984 and one in 1990. They were both used to acquire uh, real estate related to that business, 
uh, they were for a total of about another $140,000. And all of these loans were secured by uh, first mortgages on the property, and payments were made on them over the course of uh, 13 years or so. Uh, the trust itself did not expressly state that uh, the transactions with family members or with the trustee were, were prohibited. Um, but ultimately, as I mentioned, Bullock resigned as the, as the trustee in 1998, and Bank Champagne got into the case because it was named as successor trustee. All of these events up to this point ha happened in Illinois and Ohio. Uh, within a few months after the resignation, uh, the, the Bullock, as I mentioned, had uh, repaid the remaining balance of the loans with interest, and the trust's sole asset, the life insurance policy, had the same value when he resigned as when the trust was created. But the uh, two of his brothers, nonetheless, brought an action in Illinois State Court for breach of fiduciary duty, and that litigation went on for a couple of years. Ultimately, in 2002, uh, the Illinois trial court found that, uh, that uh, although Bullock did not appear to have had a malicious motive in borrowing funds from the trust and had shown a willingness to make... Uh, to, to make to, to make the trust whole by making payments, uh, he nonetheless was uh, guilty of uh, self-dealing under Illinois trust law, which was a breach of fiduciary duty. And so the court awarded damages to the trust of a quarter million dollars, which the court estimated to be the benefit that was uh, received by uh, uh, Randy Bullock from the from the breaches of duty uh, associated with the loans. And the court also added an extra sum for attorney's fees that the trust was supposed to pay to Bullock's brothers. And finally, the, the court Im impressed a constructive trust on Randy Bullock's assets, and so he could not, in effect, pay any of the judgment without um, uh, permission from, from Bank Champagne, which he was unable to get over the course of several years, which became a subject of criticism of the bank in uh, the district court opinion and in the 11th Circuit opinion, though they both uh, ultimately affirmed the bankruptcy court's judgment uh, that the debt should be accepted from discharge. Uh, so, uh, getting ahead of myself a bit there, in 2009, Bullock filed the Ch Chapter 7 case and the bank brought a, an exception to discharge proceeding under Section 523A4. Uh, Bullock represented himself pro se and lost, uh, and importantly, the the procedural posture of the case was a motion for summary judgment filed by the bank uh, based entirely on the uh, two orders by the Illinois uh, trial court and on uh, and on collateral estoppel arising from those orders. Um, the court, uh, the Eleventh Circuit, affirmed that as had as had the district court and the uh, and Bullock eventually sought. Uh, certiorari, which the uh, Supreme Court granted uh, on November the 29th. And uh, I think the rest uh, is history. Yeah. Well, Keith, uh, you know, this, although I'm clearly important to the uh, the parties involved, doesn't seem like the sort of case that would ordinarily get the Supreme Court's attention. Why do you think the, the court granted cert in this case? Well, uh, surprisingly, uh, uh there, there was a three-way circuit split on, on, uh, on this question. 
of uh, of interpreting 523A4, and uh, 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 the court's role is really to uh, resolve circuit splits and give more uniformity uh, in the application of a bankruptcy law nationally. There was uh, the first and second circuits had a so-called extreme recklessness uh, a standard of the trustee um, to breach the fiduciary uh, duty and and uh, and 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 have the obligation to be non-dischargeable would have had to engage in growth in, in extreme recklessness. And then there was the fifth, sixth, and seventh, and eleventh circuits, which had an objective recklessness uh, standard. That was the standard um, applied by the eleventh circuit in this in this case. And then there was the third approach by the fourth, eighth, and ninth circuits, uh, which is uh, really a simple negligence or even a strict liability standard, where you don't have to show recklessness at all for the trustee for the trustee's obligation to be considered non-dischargeable under 523A4. So uh, there really was a, l- a lot of ways to go here, uh, and we don't want to encourage forum shopping. You know, trustees moving to uh, the first and second. Uh, 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 circuits just so that they can engage in defalcation uh, with greater recklessness. And so this, the court, I think, uh, granted cert uh, to resolve uh, uh, the split and, and give us some guidance on, on how the statute should be applied. And the court had looked at this split, uh, as, as, as Keith knows, in 2007 and sought the advice of the Solicitor General at that time about accepting a uh, or granting a cert petition in the Hyman case from the Second Circuit, and the solicitor came back and said uh, there is a there is a circuit split here that needs to be resolved at some point, but that the Hyman case, the solicitor thought was not a great vehicle for doing that. So the court uh, denied cert uh, back then, leaving the the split to fester and mature a little bit more. Right, uh, and of course when the SG wants wants and thinks an issue is important for the court to look at, uh, that, that is, of course, a big factor uh, in, in granting cert. And so this is an important issue identified by the SG's office. Well, you know, this, if this is a matter of the meaning of defalcation of fiduciary capacity has divided the, the, the circuit courts, you know, has this division existed for a long time, or how long has this uh, ground for objecting to discharge been in the bankruptcy law? And, what have courts done with it over the years? Well, it, it has a very early uh, origins. Um, in, in the brief that we filed, we discuss how uh, the original case of defalcation uh, outside the bankruptcy context uh, uh, seems to have been a, 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 a massive uh, misappropriation by a, a customs official, $1.3 million back in uh, uh, 1838, uh, and that that, it, that uh, uh, engendered or precipitated a, 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 a report from the Secretary of Treasury to Congress with a special um, uh, message from President Van Buren uh, um, uh, and uh, calling for um, increasing public security against uh, similar defalcations, using the term defalcations. And very soon after that, in 1841, there was the Bankruptcy Act of 1841, which was uh, uh, enacted, which which uh, basically um, had a defalcation provision uh, in it uh, and uh, 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 singling out um, public officers for, for special attention. But uh, we really had had a defalcation uh, clause in the statute.
expansion in one way or another since then, and of course it's been broadened to to cover uh, uh, all fiduciaries, not just uh, public officers. And so that's really where we are today, I think. And uh, we never had a you know a complete resolution of this uh, issue since the eight, 1841. It's just been bouncing around among the courts all this time. Well, there there was a uh, there was an attempt. There was a recommendation made by the Bankruptcy Reform Commission in, as a precursor to the '78 Act uh, to delete defalcation from the statute because the term was of uncertain meaning, and they the recommendation included deletion of the term misappropriation as well. And in the uh, I believe it was in the House bill, uh, both terms were uh, were deleted, but uh, the final legislation that came out of the Senate, uh, misappropriation uh, was deleted still, but defalcation uh, slipped back in. So uh, the Congress had its chance to end the conflict there, but uh, decided not to. Well, going into oral argument, Tom, um, you know, how did you see this case going? Where did you think was your, your strongest argument in behalf of the petitioner? Well, we had two arguments. Uh, they were related uh, closely, but there were two distinct arguments. One was that a culpable mental state uh, should be required in order to establish defalcation for bankruptcy purposes. And the second argument was that even if there's no mental state requirement, there ought to be a requirement that at the end of the day, there be a loss of res when the uh, when the trustee or the or the public officer or, or whatever fiduciary is involved is called to account. Uh, it seemed to me that uh, the second argument uh, suffered from a disadvantage in that if the court had ruled on that basis, the mental state requirement issue and the source of the conflict would be unresolved. So the court could have. Uh, advance the law a bit by uh, defining uh, what act is required for defalcation, but but decided not to, uh, I, I think, because uh, the much tougher and question that had divided the courts was uh, about the mental state requirement. Now, the, uh, the Solicitor General did take a position in this case, didn't simply recommend that it be considered. Uh, what, uh, what was... Uh, the position of the SG's office when this finally came before the court. Well, oh, go ahead. Well, go, Keith, it's your turn. Go ahead. Oh, all right. Well, I, I was just going to chime in and say that the the, S, the SG's office basically opposed opposed the approach that uh, that Tom was contending for, uh, and in particular, the SG focused on some some changes in language in in, in 1970 when Congress. Uh, uh, rewrote the statute, eliminating uh, misappropriation and, and moving the word defalcation uh, to a different to a different spot. Uh, and and uh, so uh, the, the SG's office uh, uh, take. I, I think the policy motivating the SG's office is that they're just concerned uh, with, with with trustees engaging in conduct that's harmful harmful to to trusts. And it's very often hard to prove mental state, and it's a lot easier to have a a strict liability uh, um, approach that would cover even innocent situations of the type here. 
Yeah, and the interesting thing about the solicitor's position in the case was that they they did not offer a standard for the court to uh, uh, to choose. Uh, they, in other words, didn't offer any sort of comprehensive uh, standard that would apply in all cases. In a in a footnote in their brief, they disclaim the idea that every breach of fiduciary duty should be uh, should be a defalcation if a debt results and. That drew a question from Justice Alito, and uh, I think was a big problem for uh, their position in the eyes of the court is that they didn't offer a solution, which the court ordinarily looks uh, to the government to to provide. Well, Keith, uh, you offered a, a standard uh, the, that is the uh, professor's brief that was submitted uh, as a friend of the court. Uh, what was the position that uh, that you took? Uh, we felt that um, shouldn't have such a heightened or elevated standards that uh, uh, the court ultimately adopted of uh, extreme or gross recklessness. We felt that um, uh, uh, it would be more appropriate to to have a, a really a negligence or strict liability standard, uh, such that even innocent conduct uh, uh, could be covered. Um, what convinced me me of that? Uh, a number of things convinced me of that. Uh, 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 as being the wisest approach. First of all, uh, the term of the terms that are close by in the statute, uh, fraud, embezzlement, and, and uh, larceny, uh, are, are 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 really um, uh, uh, were argued to be by the other side uh, stronger terms involving a culpable mental state and by the canon of construction, nocitary socius. Uh, it was thought that. Uh, that defalcation should be understood uh, in the same way, but in, in my mind, that would that would render that approach would render other other parts of the statute, in particular Section 523 A13, which makes uh, criminal restitution obligations non-dischargeable, would basically render render that uh, uh, it would, would basically be uh, redundant because if you if you if you engage in criminal fraud. You're already, or or, 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 or if you are culpable defalcation in, in the criminal sense, which is the direction the court went, it would anyway be a non-dischargeable obligation under 523 uh, A13, uh, and so that's that was that was the, probably the strongest reason for me. Also, if you look elsewhere in the statute at the word at the word fraud, Section 548 has the word fraud, and doesn't only have actual fraud, it also has constructive fraud. So this. The word fraud itself, which is one of the neighboring terms uh, uh, that was that was used by the court to to um, uh, justify a, a an elevated culpable mental state, uh, the word fraud need, need not mean that. You can have constructive fraud under Section 548 as well as uh, actual fraud, uh, and so I, I I think the nostri socius argument. Uh, uh, that that canon shouldn't apply here, shouldn't have been applied here, and that was the position uh, we took uh, together with Ken Klee and some other distinguished professors uh, on the other side. Yeah, it's not often that we uh, see one of the one of these canons uh, be deployed by the court in a uh, in a significant way. It's my observation; they're usually kind of uh, throwaway arguments. But in this case, the, uh, the Noscator associates clearly. Was a significant factor for uh, Justice Breyer and the rest of the court. Well, and it, it may be that uh, we don't pay as much attention to the cases in which canons turn out to be important because they tend to be the less publicized statutory interpretation-only cases that are 
a pretty significant part of the Supreme Court's docket because they uh, they do tend to result in conflicts and, and they need to be resolved, particularly where they're federal statutes, of course. There's no one else to resolve conflicts, so uh, they probably get resorted to more than more than we think. And of course, as a Carl Llewellyn once wrote, for every canon of construction, there's a counter canon. And so, uh, uh, I had I had canons to the right of me, canons to the left of me during oral <laughs> argument. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I want to come back to one of the policy arguments that was uh, cited by Justice Breyer, and that is the idea that uh, objections to discharge or grounds for objecting to discharge should be narrowly construed and looking back to the Geiger case and drawing inspiration from that. Um, that certainly uh, augured in favor of the petitioner's point of view, but uh, from the respondent's point of view, and Keith, you're filling in for the respondent here, uh, there was another policy argument that you thought uh, offset that. Could you uh, elaborate on that for us? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, there is the fresh start policy. We want to grant uh, individual debtors a discharge, and the code provides for that. At the same time, Congress was explicit uh, in enacting Section 523, which were exceptions to discharge, which is certain obligations are non-dischargeable. And uh, there's, uh, we, we cited some authority in our brief for the proposition that where Congress is explicit on this, and gives us an exception to discharge, that obviously is of a higher priority to Congress in that in that circumstance than the general policy of a fresh start. So, I mean, Justice Breyer, of course, is right that we Congress has a general fresh start policy for individual debtors, which entitles them, generally speaking, to a to a discharge. The honest but unfortunate debtor. There there are these exceptions to discharge, which uh, the courts have a duty uh, uh, to enforce, as Congress wrote them. Right. The issue there, of course, is that defalcation is not very explicit. It's a term that that has no contemporary meaning, and uh, the dictionary definitions are all over the place. So the, the fresh start policy, and and the which really is one of the rudiments of individual bankruptcy law, comes more into play when there is uncertainty about the meaning of a term. And we we of course argued that to construe the fresh to 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 vindicate the fresh start policy required that that defalcation be given a a rigorous construction and and the court ultimately agreed another another policy that's often in play when there's an ambiguous statutory term uh is deference to the agency that is charged with um enforcing and administering that statute and of course here we had the office of the United States trustee represented by the solicitor general's office uh uh arguing uh the other way, argue, argue, arguing uh, uh, in, in, in favor of a, of a strict liability um, approach, uh, and the, the court didn't give any deference to the SG, didn't give any deference to the office of the U.S. trustee in this case, uh, and uh, I'm told that this is the first time in, in, in uh, f 15 years uh, that the court has done that, uh, um, go against the uh, office of the U.S. trustee and its uh, interpretation of an ambiguous term in its own organic statute uh, with respect to uh, exceptions to discharge. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, Keith, that the U.S. trustee has the statutory uh, prerogatives when it comes to interpreting the bankruptcy code that, say, the, the EPA does with respect to the environmental laws where you'd be maybe mentioning Chevron deference. Sure, yeah. And, Chevron doesn't apply to DOJ. That's true. Yeah, and the other, the other point I would make, I guess, is the one I made earlier, is that the, the the solicitor didn't really 
do what what your group did, which was offer uh, a comprehensive standard. I mean, I, I certainly thought that the one that was offered by your group was overbroad, but at least it was a comprehensive standard. Uh, the government was uh, uh, a little more, I don't want to say coy, but uh, the, the government didn't want to uh, offer a standard that would apply in every case, as, as your group did. So there really wasn't anything to defer to, even if we were to say they were entitled to some deference. And they certainly do have an impressive track record in in cases in which the solicitor has become involved on behalf of the uh, U.S. trustee program. Well, I wanted to then follow up on something else that uh, I think Tom had mentioned in the, uh, the the two issues the court could have addressed. The, the one, the, uh, the the mental standard or the standard. Uh, with respect to defalcation. The other was, and I think you alluded to this, uh, Tom, was the extent of liability. In other words, is the liability for which uh, non-dischargeability may be an appropriate remedy, the liability simply of reimbursing the trust for uh, whatever was uh, improperly taken or disgorging any benefits that the uh, defalcator has has achieved by virtue of the defalcation did the, the court didn't uh, didn't address that did it no the court uh, explicitly declined to address that issue and as i mentioned earlier it, it isn't well presented by very many cases so that is perfectly understandable yeah I mean, although court... this one did with the fa- i mean at least arguably the uh, the illinois trial court presumably grounded its quarter-million-dollar judgment on some sort of a disgorgement theory, even if it wasn't very clear. Perhaps the theory was constructive trust, uh, uh, and then once the um, once Mr. Bullock made profits uh, from the investment, then if, if if he was investing really the trust's asset to begin with, then any any appreciation in that asset would would be really the property of the trust. I suppose that's the theory. Yeah, that, that's correct, Keith. I think the the court used the word benefit, the trial court in Illinois, uh, to describe uh, how it was uh, coming up with uh, a reasoning for the $250,000, but it added that it wasn't sure how to estimate the benefit and thought that $250,000 seemed about right. So, uh, but, but the issue really, uh, the, the second issue in our case was if at the end of the day you've returned the entire res, is there is there any other uh, is there a basis for finding defalcation, which uh, at least in the when when we were discussing public officers, which I think Keith's group seems right to me about the origins of this being the the scandal in the late 1830s involving the U.S. Customs House. If that's the origin, then that that always involves a situation where money is missing at the end of the day. Uh, right. But the court, but that truly doesn't resolve too many cases uh, again, because uh, and I've, I think I've read probably every defalcation case uh, in the 20th century, and uh, the, there aren't that many cases that very few cases that involve situations where there isn't some money missing. Well, here, I mean, here's one possibility. I mean, Mr. Bullock did expose the trust. To the risk that he would not pay the trust back. Sure, in the end, he did pay it back, but he exposed the trust to that risk. 
that is a harm uh, that could be a basis, I think, for finding defalcation on remand um, under the heightened standard the court has given us. Well, that uh, raises the next question that I was going to ask. This case, now that we have the standard, was remanded. Uh, what uh, what Tom is uh, going on with the with the case right now? Well, the, the Supreme Court hasn't entered judgment yet, so nothing has been remanded yet, but it'll go back to the 11th Circuit. Uh, we are hopeful that the bank will simply accede to the discharge at this point and allow the Bullock family to uh, see if they can reconcile. There's there's no money left in the trust. The, the, uh, the bank didn't have any money in the trust to pay the premium, and so when Mr. Bullock's father died and 2008 or so, the policy had lapsed, and the uh, and no no policy benefit came to the trust. So at this point, it's only about uh, uh, more pain for the Bullock family if it continues. And I, I hope the bank will conclude that uh, uh, it should. If not, we'll litigate. If not, we'll litigate it, and we like our chances. Well, going forward, you know, and. Do you, either of you see any, uh, or how do you, both of you see the uh, implications of this case for uh, for a litigation in connection with dischargeability in connection with a fiduciary? Well, I would say, um, first of all, trustees now have weaker incentives to comply with their fiduciary duties. Uh, that's, that's, I think, the first obvious result. That I, uh, you know, if you if if you're if if it's now easier to get a discharge than it would have been with a different standard, then then the incentive to be careful to observe fiduciary duties is, is going to be weakened. Um, uh, be, be beyond that, um, I think uh, there, there, you know maybe the Supreme Court is signaling that they're going to be less deferential to the U, U.S. trustee in the future on other issues. And uh, on on sections 523, which is what you asked about itself, you know the big one coming down the pike may well be. The hardship exception for student loans, which is an increasingly difficult burden. How we, I mean, hardship is also an, an ambiguous term, and and there may be a changing understanding of it given given the crisis that's going on right now with a uh, mounting debts and higher education. Uh, yeah, I would say that uh, I, I'm very skeptical about any argument that fiduciaries either know about the the rules for getting a discharge in bankruptcy or give it any thought whatsoever when they are deciding whether to misbehave or not. So I don't, the incentive argument has never swayed me much. But on another subject, I think that as a practical matter, Bullock is likely to limit the circumstances in which issue preclusion is available in exception to discharge proceedings that are premised on defalcation under 523A4. the uh, at least at least creditors who are hoping to use issue preclusion in a later bankruptcy will have to give close attention to the to the Bullock standard and and get findings in the precursor litigation uh, that uh, support a a a, uh, a Bullock standard uh, gross recklessness or or knowing misconduct uh, findings uh, in order to use issue preclusion. Well, very good. I thank each of you for your participation. I hope this uh, conversation will be useful to all who listen to it, who are interested in bankruptcy litigation in general and uh, 
dischargeability litigation in particular. Thank you. Thank you very much. So until next time, thank you on behalf of the American Bankruptcy Institute. 